Research allows us to ask questions that industry sometimes doesn't have the luxury to ask and answer because they're on a cycle where they got to report quarterly profits, they have to innovate very, very quickly, and that can preclude them from looking at interesting research questions. Research is essentially one of the things that we coach a lot of teams through. On a day-to-day -day basis, it's really trying to help educate them to understand that research is not a, a thing, it's not a phase of a project. It's a thing that is a continuously evolving and always on practice. Welcome to Beyond Research, a podcast brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. In this episode, we will discuss research and how it can lead to economic growth at home and around the world. We will also explore how research creates direct economic benefit in the form of job creation, new technology, and talent attraction, and other related themes, including commercialization. So, how can research translate into tangible economic value? The impact of research in terms of economic development spans short, medium, and long-term benefits. Short-term benefits can be manifest as foreign direct investment for small, medium enterprises that spin out of the university ecosystem. The medium-term benefits relate to partnerships with venture funds and industry to commercialize some of those technologies. And the longer-term benefits get manifest in reduced costs to deliver healthcare in a province like Nova Scotia or anywhere else on the planet. But we're also training students to develop and innovate new technologies that will also bring substantial benefits down the stretch. This is Dr. Daniel Boyd, an associate professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He holds a cross appointment in the School of Biomedical Engineering and has mobilized his past research findings to create several successful companies in the biomedical space. He possesses a deep understanding of what it takes to successfully commercialize an idea. Let's start with ABK Biomedical. Founded in 2012, ABK is focused on researching, developing, and commercializing breakthrough medical device therapies to improve treatment outcomes and the lives of patients with benign and malignant hypervascular tumors. The company is impressive, but started with a simple research question. How could he develop tiny glass beads or microspheres smaller in diameter than human hair, to provide radiation treatments? And could these beads be visible during imaging procedures to allow doctors to confirm if the beads were delivered precisely to the tumour to improve the patient outcomes? So I had that idea, but I didn't know if it was a good one. But I wanted to make sure we weren't fixing a problem that really wasn't really a problem. So I met one of the world's most fabulous doctors, Dr. Bob Abraham, who works at Nova Scotia Health. He's an interventional radiologist. And Bob and I talked about what it might take and what we might need to do to develop that type of technology. We quickly learned that if we could make an imageable microsphere that doctors could see on x-ray, for example, they could standardize, personalize, and optimize every single cancer treatment that would use this type of technology in a way that, up until today, just couldn't even have been imagined. So we developed the technology. And in 2019, ABK Biomedical had a record foreign direct investment round for Nova Scotia. 
I think the round was around 40 million Canadian dollars invested in Halifax for Canadian jobs, for Canadian technologies, to bring that technology all the way through to clinical use, which is awesome. If that isn't impressive enough, this idea also has the potential to benefit glass science on a world stage. This new body of knowledge indirectly creates value by better positioning future researchers to ask more questions, report new findings, and create technologies that could improve other patient treatments in the future. But I want to emphasize it started with making sure we were asking the right question, because there's so many cool things we can do with glass science, right? I want to be able to focus on the thing that's going to bring the most benefit to patients, that's going to bring the most economic development to our region, and that's going to advance the field of glass science for the benefit of all researchers interested in this space. When we hear about research creating spin-off companies and economic benefit, Dr. Boyd has a considerable amount of first-hand experience. Not only did he help create ABK Biomedical, he shared another research idea that stemmed from an experience he had teaching a continuing dental education course exploring the ingredients of toothpaste. So at the end of that continuing dental education course, I just asked some of those folks in the room, if you could wave a magic wand, what would a really good sensitivity toothpaste do for your patients? And the room told me. And the next Monday, I walked up to my colleagues in dental hygiene. I met with Professor Heather Doucette, an absolutely amazing individual. And I pressure tested some of those assumptions with Heather. And she said, if you could do that, Denny, that'd be super. And we built about 72 different prototypes. One of them worked. Now we have a company called IR Scientific here in Halifax. And that's brought in an awful lot of investment to our region. It's created new jobs in our region and hopefully a brand new technology that can be used to treat tooth sensitivity. These are two examples of how ideas born in an academic setting can grow into successful businesses that can help stimulate the economy. In both examples, highly technical companies emerged and the local economy benefited from increased investment, talent attraction and retention of highly skilled workers. Dr. Boyd has some personal examples of this through his time with ABK Biomedical. I'm thinking of some folks, for example, we got an engineer over at ABK. Her name is Catherine Atwell. And Catherine, I just think, embodies everything that's wonderful about device engineers. Catherine is unwavering in making sure that the design of our devices are going to be appropriate for the intended use. Catherine came to ABK from Toronto. And she took a risk on a small startup company to come work in Halifax, leaving a very large company and a very stable job behind her in order to make really good technologies for patients who really need them. Really good problems, high quality problems, which if solved, bring fantastic solutions to patients, tend to do all the talent attraction you need. Because if the problem is right and the potential solution is right, you'll find the right people. And they'll come from they'll come from everywhere. Good people want to work on good problems and they'll do it however and wherever they can. Connecting dots and determining if you're asking the right questions is paramount. By networking and communicating with others in both academia and industry, Dr. Boyd believes a greater level of innovation can be achieved. It's on everyone. It's our responsibility as researchers 
to stand up and go find people, have the conversations with some of those folks in industry to see if there's overlap in interests. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. It's okay. It's okay if there isn't an overlap. But you got to get out there and you got to get talking, having conversations. Like innovation comes from conversations. To illustrate the point on how important a conversation can be, let's go back to Apollo 13. Three individuals, a couple of hundred thousand kilometers from home, oxygen's gone. They make the call. We've got a problem. What happens next is innovation at an unprecedented level that we have never seen before to get three people safely catapulted around the moon and back home when absolutely anybody would have thought there was no way that was going to be possible. But the innovation that happened there, it covered everything. It covered everything from scrubbers for CO2 to managing flight trajectories to recovery. The innovation that happened as a result of a conversation that started with, we got a problem, was unprecedented. So I try to capture that we've got a problem essence in every project we work on. And unless someone can really articulate the problem to me, it's probably time to move on to someone who has a genuinely real problem that we can start working on. The countless rounds of trial and error that are typically necessary to create a viable product or an idea are not lost on Dr. Boyd. As revolutionary or interest in a project may sound, if it doesn't address a problem, it isn't worth pursuing further. If we don't understand the problem properly, it might take us eight years to figure out we defined the wrong question way back at the start of a research project. So we spend an inordinate amount of time at the start of every project making sure we've actually got a real problem that's going to be helpful. If we can solve it, it's going to be helpful to a patient or a doctor. And uh, look, to be honest, I think I've probably killed nine out of ten of my projects on a yearly basis because they're exciting and they're cool, but they're not really fitting a problem. And so we want to put our efforts into things that we can help with in the near term. It takes 10 to 15 years for new technologies to get onto the, the market. So you got to be very judicious about where you spend your time. And I like to spend my time on big problems where there are solutions eagerly being sought. Not all research projects are created equal, and not all research projects will be commercialized. So we asked, how do other types of research projects benefit our society today and for years to come? Knowledge. Often overlooked fundamental knowledge in how our universe is what it is and how we can control certain things about it are incredibly beneficial. I couldn't make soluble glasses to treat dentin sensitivity. I couldn't make soluble glasses to treat osteoarthritis if it wasn't for the efforts of nuclear physicists understanding how glasses wouldn't degrade so that they could capture nuclear waste and store it in the ground. Knowledge. Knowledge. Absolutely. The pursuit of knowledge is absolutely fabulous. And I love to pursue fundamental knowledge. Like all of the, I, I've been talking about problem-based approaches. Please don't get me wrong though. I like to have a problem that I'm focused on solving, but understanding the fundamentals around glass materials and how they can be utilized. That's really where I get my kicks. When looking into the future, 
Dr. Boyd sees endless opportunities for growth in the innovation ecosystem. I think the exciting stuff for innovation is an innovation ecosystem that sees support for the earliest stages of R&D all the way through to clinical trials here in our province for the benefit of our province. I think that would be absolutely amazing. And look, to be frank, if we're not doing that, we're doing something wrong because we, we got to get there. We got to generate the right kinds of innovation that can manifest change in our healthcare system here, reduce costs, improve quality of life. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't start in Canada. There's business forces and things like that that maybe require you got to do some studies in the US or you got to do them in New Zealand or somewhere else. But at the end of the day, it's all happening here in Nova Scotia first, and it will be manifest here in Nova Scotia. We have to do better as a scientific community at explaining the scientific process, explaining why it takes so long when it looks like it happens quickly. We got to explain why that's happened quickly. But typically speaking, in material science, it can take up to 15 or 20 years for a discovery to become a real thing for a patient. I think the the essence of what I'm saying is we got to do a better job at talking science to the community, explaining what it is we do, doing things like this, having a chat, just shooting a breeze on a podcast and just talking about how science happens, what's happening, what's going on, and letting people get a sense for the people behind the science. We were curious, so we asked Dr. Boyd how he would define the scientific process. I would describe the scientific process as getting really comfortable with probably being wrong until you're right. And being comfortable with being wrong allows you to ask lots and lots of questions, not be embarrassed if you don't get the right answer, but knowing that you're moving towards it. And then this weird irony happens. Because you've been wrong so many times, you eventually get it right. You know what's right. <laughs> so you like, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. Out of all of those failures comes the truth. And we're then able to use the truth and develop new technologies. So yeah, I think I'd probably speak about vulnerability, getting it wrong in order to get it right. I think probably quote Einstein or paraphrase Einstein, no experiment will ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. Have some conversations. If it's a problem worth solving or you've got a solution to a problem that people believe is worth solving, you're not going to have a hard time garnering support to get your research into the hands of a user, whether it's policy, whether it's cool, injectable biomaterials, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. So if we have a research question, ask the right questions to the right people and determine that we have a problem worth solving. So what comes next? What else should the scientific community consider? Matt Cooper is the Chief Innovation Officer at Volta in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Volta is a non-profit organization that was created by founders for founders to help startups navigate the common barriers technology-enabled companies often experience by providing resources and training opportunities. As Chief Innovation Officer, Matt is responsible for leading initiatives to directly support founders and the growth of their companies, and has over 20 years of experience developing and marketing products with startups. If everything we've discussed so far is blowing your mind, now would be a good time to grab a pen and paper. Matt breaks down this process of understanding the problem hypothesis into six key phrases or questions. One, who is your target customer? Two, what is your theory on the initial trigger 
that makes them aware they have this problem? Three, what is the context of the problem, as in how those impacted describe it? Four, what is the impact of the problem and the root cause of the negative impact it creates? Five, what is your theory on why it happens to begin with? And lastly, six, what is that future state of progress that you are trying to create with your solution? Those six questions help really calibrate how much work do we need to do uh, between this theory that you have a solution and you want to commercialize it because actually getting people to pay you for your solution is a function of how accurate your theory about the problem is. And so the, the methodology is really just constantly iterating on your theory, collecting more evidence. And the sooner you start seeing the trends in that evidence, the more it becomes easier to come up with uh, the marketing, the positioning, the product prioritization, the uh, competitor analysis, all those different things that you would need to do to to gain traction and remain relevant in the market that you choose. But if you're trying to bring a solution to the world, well, the world's a big place and there's lots of people creating really novel solutions out there. So you have to do your homework before um, you're going to have a chance or you know, a disproportional chance of, of competing against every other option people have to solve that problem. Just like Dr. Boyd, Matt believes there are multiple ways to solve a problem and no one solution fits all. Some methods may be more effective in one situation, but above all else, the need to do your due diligence is critical. Thoroughly research your idea, the scope of the issue you seek to address, and the market you aim to penetrate. You know, from a from an economic standpoint, if you're thinking about um, a startup as that context, there's lots of great methods that you can use when researching a startup. Some teams decide to do that research in the form of building a product. Um, others choose to kind of do that discovery in the beginning and try and unearth the the, the types of evidence that they think are true uh, before committing to those. So there's, there's definitely um, no one specific way to use research in that context. But I think, you know, the, the teams that, that I've been exposed to and definitely in the, the things that I've learned through the last 20 plus um, years that I've been doing this, it's a incredibly effective way at understanding your customer so that the solution you build has just got that much better chance of adding value than any other option that they can use, right? So from an economic standpoint, that obviously means that you become one of the 10% of startups that actually don't fail. Um, and when you use that research, whether or not it's the primary, secondary, or or just kind of doing it on a continuous basis in your startup, um, it it drastically improves your odds of survival and success. Understanding this, we asked in his opinion, what is the biggest problem facing startups? They have overwhelming odds stacked against them, right? It's depending on what research you look at, it ranges from 70 to 90% of startups fail. And I think the number one problem within that 90% have to do with building a solution that people don't feel compelled to use, right? They're not willing to pay for, or they're not willing to change behavior and start adopting your your product. So I think that's that's kind of the key pothole that a lot of startup founders face, right? Is they fall into that trap of building a solution and then kind of looking for a problem afterwards. That's the primary day-to-day that we solve for. Matt and his team at Volta support a diverse group of startups. With that said, there are some pieces of advice that ring true regardless of your work or industry. 
One of these ideas is to embrace the concept for the need for continuous research at all stages of the innovation pipeline. Continuously investing in that that research is essentially one of the things that we coach a lot of teams through, right? So on a day-to-day basis, it's really trying to help educate them to understand that research is not a, a thing, it's not a phase of a project, it's a thing that is a continuously evolving and always on sort of practice. So some teams do it, some teams don't. In SaaS or software as a service in a, in a B2B context, the vast majority of teams don't do research um, or they don't talk to their customers. They're doing research from uh, the discrete roles that the members of the team do, but I don't think they think about it as as day-to-day research. So um, my argument to most teams that I work with is you're doing it, um, you're just not necessarily benefiting from getting the the results of that research out to the rest of the team and, and communicating it. So sales is a form of research, marketing is a form of research, uh, product uh, development and execution is a form of research. So um, there are much more effective ways than um, building it and bring it to market and then finding out where you're wrong. I think that's the the core areas that we help with on a day-to-day basis is um, help them understand there's different ways than just bringing that product to market. It, research is slower in the initial stages of building a solution and trying to bring it to market and, and uniquely positioning against other options, but it is a lot, lot faster than building the wrong thing. If we fundamentally believe the need for continuous research is great, How much time and money should startups be investing in research today, tomorrow, and in the future? Matt told us that this is the question he gets asked more than any other. And at the end of the day, new startups only have so much money and operating bandwidth. So how can a startup maintain a consistent level of research focus and output while juggling other priorities? The way I like to kind of frame it is um, how much research you do is really a function of how much risk the team is willing to tolerate, right? So every product, every startup has um, has a few different areas of risk, right? So the, the initial, the biggest one, I think early stages has a lot to do with um, the value risk. So are you sure that what you're going to build is going to deliver value to, to the customer? The earlier you are in that phase, um, the higher that risk is, right? Because you don't actually have any evidence to support your theories about whether or not your product's going to add value. And how much research we put into any given initiative, uh, I think is really, in the worst case scenario, it's it's the how much you can afford to given your knowledge of the problem and what you're trying to do. Uh, in the best case scenario, you, you're basically having proactive conversations with the entire team uh, to discuss, you know, what, what risk we're willing to take, right? So that value risk at the beginning is really big, right? It's the highest potential for failure. The scientific process applies in the context of a startup. However, Matt explained how it can be less of a controlled environment, even though the methodology remains the same. It's obviously going to be much more measurable than you get into a messy startup context, but I think the the practice is the same, right? So if I were to define, to define it, it's, it's basically defining a hypothesis about something you think is true, coming up with a way to test your assumptions and collecting results, observing what they are, um, and driving your decisions based on the data that you collect. Matt and his team are committed to removing barriers and providing resources to startups in hopes of creating an environment of innovation and economic growth. But how do they go about doing this? There are four key areas they focus on to help organizations reach their potential. 
funding growth, finding talent, education and advice, and lastly, community. In essence, they help you bring your idea for solution to life. And when looking ahead to how we can get a wider integration of research and industry, he sees great potential, but there are also some potential challenges. The hard part is, is corporations really understanding the problems they're trying to actually solve and organizing around that? Do they actually have an innovative uh, culture, right? There's a lot of organizations that, that want to innovate, but architecturally, they're not actually set up um, to take those sorts of risks, right? Their systems and processes are are meant to be designed to find anomalies like risk and crush them. <laughs> so that doesn't happen all that often. I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges is that there isn't um, what lean lean startup methodology would call, you know, innovation accounting. So how do you take risk? Um, in in an environment that's actually designed to optimize risk out of the out of the organization, uh, so that takes willpower, right? That takes leadership. That takes um, individuals that understand that there's a different set of metrics and key KPIs that you need to assess risk through when you're trying to innovate and bring novel solutions to the markets. When he looks for companies taking the right approach to foster an innovation in the corporate world. Matt points to a company called Bounty Board. I was talking to a startup called Bounty Board, for example, and they're basically trying to do just this, right? They're trying to organize corporations so corporate innovation can take place by creating these things called bounties. And that's an example of the a structure that you can add um, that actually helps these types of, like it could be research organization, it could be uh, a team that can actually go and understand what the problem is and understand how their research can help uh, solve those problems. According to their website, innovators get revenue for solving so-called bounties for corporations. Corporations get their problems solved and startup hubs get revenue for hosting the two. This is interesting. So it's not surprising that Matt sees startups as a proven way that government can support research and foster innovation in local markets. Startups are an incredibly efficient way uh, at the at the province investing in innovation and generating, you know, a return on that investment that, you know, out outpaces a lot of other types of investments. So, um, it's a really great way to to monetize to commercialize research, right? So, um, I I would encourage any um, any provincial uh, stakeholders that are listening to to continue to. Um, encourage that sort of partnership with with Volta, with other organizations, not just with us, uh, because we're all trying to do the same stuff. We're all trying to help founders bring novel solutions to market. And um, the, the spinoff benefits to that are well-defined well and, and hard to argue against. Matt and Dr. Boyd both emphasize the need for researchers and innovators to get out there and network with industry and the public. Ask questions gain a deeper understanding for where there is an opportunity for innovation and find the right people or organizations to partner with to help realize research potential. If you're a researcher, spend some time trying to find out what resources are available for you and and know that there are a ton of people here in this community in, in the community that's forming and continuing to evolve um, that have your best interests in mind. Find the people that can help and because we're out here. Um, and we want to hear about your ideas and we want to help you learn the actual skills that you need to bring your innovation to market. 
We've just heard how research happening today is translated into tangible economic benefit through new and established companies. From attracting and retaining talent and young people, to better connecting the research community to industry, we can see how research can help stimulate our economy at home and around the world. Research investments done well directly support our regional priorities and will help ensure we retain highly skilled students after graduation, attract significant investments, and continue to keep our industries competitive at home and on the international stage. Even our so-called research failures create valuable knowledge that will only benefit future research endeavors and researchers. There are many paths to innovation and ensuring breakthroughs are implemented in a way that they effectively benefit society. Innovative thinkers like Matt Cooper and Dr. Daniel Boyd, as well as organizations built to support a thriving startup community, are poised to continue to make waves in our innovation pipeline to help ensure a more prosperous future. Researchers like me are in the enviable position where we have the opportunity to get a little bit of oxygen into the room, breathe a little bit, take our time, think about things properly, and develop solutions. In developing the solutions, you're solving problems that the larger companies can't solve, but you're training the next generation of innovators while you do it for the longer term. So economic benefits come in the form of enhanced healthcare procedures from my perspective as a biomaterials and medical device engineer. We get better use of funds in the healthcare system. We train better people to develop new, better technologies, and we support a critical pipeline of technology development that larger companies can't really focus on right now. So I'd say that's a gap. Internal perceptions about how research can be used and perceiving it to be a tool or a method as opposed to something that can and should be woven into the fabric or the culture of how the team thinks about adding value to the market. It just hasn't been widely adopted, right? And I think that's changing. I think it's changing rapidly. Thank you for listening to Beyond Research, brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. We would like to give a special thank you to our guests, Dr. Daniel Boyd and Matt Cooper. To learn more about the research heard on this podcast, visit researchns.ca slash beyondresearch. I'm your host, Reese Waters, and we will see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. production.